we're trying to do school differently here, sure. which I can tell you more about. Yeah. But we are trying to really prepare students for this tech-driven Boston labor market that is constantly changing. Schools typically, you know, are preparing students for yesterday, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and so how do we not only prepare students for tomorrow, but um, beyond? Uh, there's some statistics or there's some studies that show that um, you know, today's grade school students, 65% of today's grade school students will be employed in fields that we know nothing about at this point. And so if that is essentially the mandate, how do we prepare students for that future? Interesting. So the, vo the voice, that, uh, voice that everyone hears is Marty Fuller from Boston Plan for Excellence and the Dearborn School, which we're going to talk a bit about more soon. I'm sort of catching up to an intro here and uh, want to respond to what you've been talking about. Technology and innovation is infused in education early, but it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to actually build, like sort of like throw everything out and kind of go against the grain and figure out, well, what are the ways that we can build sort of like a feedback loop with the tech and innovation economy such that the latest shifts which happen are happening and will happen more and more frequently but the shifts that are happening in technology are communicated into educators taught mm -hmm. and then shared sort of subsequently with students so i'm kind of playing back to you a bit of what sure. i've heard but that's beautiful to me it's the sort of thing that i am passionate about participating mm -hmm. in so i'm glad that we're and very great grateful that we're sitting here together but curious if you want to expand on that a little bit more and, and also speak a bit about where we are today and in, in, in this new sort of state-of-the-art Dearborn School and what that means um, as a physical representation mm -hmm. uh, but but also and probably more importantly from an ideological standpoint what this school stands for with regards to building that connective tissue with the tech and innovation community of Boston which is where all the jobs will be for these kids someday. Absolutely. So this is Dearborn STEM Academy. The school has been around for, I think, 100 years in different iterations. And um, several years ago, so the school used to occupy an old building on this very site. And several years ago, um, the school had been underperforming for many years, I should say. And the community, in particular, a number of churches, including Roxbury Presbyterian Church, who um, got together with Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, which is a body of churches, synagogues, and mosques that um, come together around community issues, political issues, for local political reform and activism. Um, so community groups such as those two came together and said, okay, the school's underperforming and this building is not sufficient for, for the needs of the students. Um, and we're in uh, one of the lowest income neighborhoods of Boston, as you know. Um, you may be familiar with Boston Public Schools and some of the history of um, undereducation of students of color, which Boston Public Schools is um, they have been aware of and they have been great about kind of stating that and wanting to rectify it. Um, and so these community groups said, all right, we need, we need a better building that has all the technology 
We need a building that is designed for 21st century learning, that has open spaces, space for collaboration, mm -hmm. can accommodate the use of technology. And, um, and so because of that movement, these groups organized and um, got the state and the city to secure $72 million to build this building. So there's a whole lot more story and history beyond building, that. It's a beautiful building, by the way. Like, yeah, it's stunning. It's wonderful. Yeah. And, and it's very open when you're in the middle and it's you can see four floors up and the bottom floor is where the cafeteria where, where all mm -hmm. the students eat. Sort of right. a sense, uh, it's, I guess a sense of community and belonging is, is right. probably inherent in sort of just being here. And transparency yeah. and yeah. flexibility. Yeah. Like, like you said, you come in, if you stand on the, the second story, of the building, you're looking down at, you mentioned the cafeteria, we call it the learning commons. But um, as you look straight ahead and above and below you, you can see learning going on right. in different forms at, you know, in four levels yeah. of the school, which is really inspiring mm -hmm. to see. Tell me and tell listeners, we were chatting a bit before we went sort of on air. And we won't quote you on this, but like, we won't hold yeah. you to this, I should say. But this is about one of the densest areas of uh, schools and, and where the um, a high density of education is happening in the city of Boston, right? Where it we is. are right now. Right. We're in Roxbury and um, we've got um, many Boston public schools here. And we've got um, our school, Dearborn STEM Academy, and another science and technology school, um, the John D. O'Brien School, which is one of Boston's exam schools. And I'd mentioned to you before that Ron Dorsey, who used to be the um, chief of education for Boston, started calling this neighborhood the Education Innovation District. And right. I, that just thrilled me to hear because I think that's exactly how we need to to think about this region. Like we need to, to steward these schools um, to ensure that we can harness the potential of the brilliant and talented kids that we have in this neighborhood, um, neighborhood that's been so underserved. And um, one thing we we like to talk about at the Dearborn is there are a few vantage points in the school from which you can see downtown. You can see like the Prudential Tower, the Hancock Tower, which is two miles or less away. But the chasm between um, Roxbury. Mm -hmm. And the life of the average person in Roxbury and what's going on in downtown is very far in many ways. It's far in, in, in that for some students, they can't afford an MBTA pass to even get to internship opportunities downtown. Wow. You know, it's just a, a bus ride, one bus ride away. Yeah. But um, figuring out the $2 each way um, or affording the $30 a month for the discounted MBTA pass for students is a difficult thing. Um, but it's also just far away in that um, the opportunities and access necessary um, for students to, to take part in that world has just not been, we haven't put it in place. And so that's really what we're trying to do at Dearborn STEM Academy, meaning that, yes, we are, we want to um, challenge students in academics and teach with rigor, but we also want to provide lots of varied opportunities for students to experience the working world um, and to collaborate. So we, we collaborate with companies and institutions around the region to 
make that possible. That's cool. There's like an element of practicality to that, right? right? It's just like creating those bridges. What are some of the, like, I'm just totally guessing and spitballing here. Like are some of the ways around the access, like once you build, I I love to hear a little bit about some of the organizations, businesses you've built relationships with, but do you, do you, can you build a relationship with a big business? Like there's big businesses like Wayfair and TripAdvisor that are like consumer household names, but then there's like way more that are just business to business sort of tech brands. And then of course there's the whole financial district. Do you have, uh, could you just, you know, build a relationship, build a relationship with a few entities and bus kids over and sort of have like a coordinated um, internship program against a framework? Like, is that the sort of thing that you're coming up with? Sure, sort of. So we have um, one example of a partnership we have is with Microsoft. So Microsoft has sponsored, I didn't get the chance to explain this, but um, Boston Plan for Excellence also runs a teacher training program called Mm -hmm. Boston Teacher Residency, Mm -hmm. which is a clinical model for training teachers um, based off of a medical residency model. So we have aspiring teachers who we call residents who are co-teaching classes in our school, Dearborn STEM Academy, and in our other Boston public school, which is called Dudley Street School and is uh, half a mile from here. Um, And so Microsoft sponsoring our teacher residency program for training computer science teachers. Mm -hmm. And we also um, have arranged field trips with Microsoft where students can go to the Microsoft garage space in Mm -hmm. Cambridge and do like little programming activities. We're we're working on building um, with Microsoft and with some other companies teacher externships where teachers, our computer science teachers, our engineering teachers, and perhaps others can spend a couple weeks in the summer um, working with developers and sharpening their skills. Our computer science teachers, teachers, the two that we have here, came from industry. One was in gaming, okay. and the languages that they used four, six years ago are not what have all changed. Have all changed, yeah. and so keeping their skills up to date is really important for the life of our school and for our curriculum. So. Um, and then we've got, you know, we arrange job shadow days. We have professionals come into the school and present to students. We have um, um, workshops that companies will run for students. We have just lots of ways, and we can we can tailor them. We can work with the company to tailor them to um, the company's, um, you know, qualifiers, whatever. Yeah. Um, they yeah. need to, constraints they need to work around. So their specifics and whatnot. And I imagine it's, I mean, it's cool in a lot of ways. I mean, it built, it builds some interesting sort of a, a, like affinity, like almost brand affinity with like young children who are being impressed upon these, a brand like Microsoft that's welcoming them in at a young age to sort of learn. And I, I imagine like that's, that's an interesting, mm-hmm. um, there's some interesting sort of opportunities that come, you know, later on where maybe students start to feel like, Hey, I could have a sense of belonging at a place like Microsoft. And, exactly. And here's the type. And, and, exactly. And and what sort of jobs? You know, what's let me let me look a little more closer closely at the types of jobs that I want there. Uh, you hit on something that that we hadn't talked about that much yet. The the teacher residency stuff. I was interested about that. Interested about that in general. Are those? You mentioned they're co-teaching at the two schools. Mm-hmm. Are they full-time teachers co-teaching? Are they? Are they? Um, wh- 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 what does that sure. mean by co-teaching? Sure. So the program Boston Teacher Residency um, was developed by our our executive director, Jesse Solomon, 
Um, and the model, the residency model has been um, replicated around the country um, in 25 or so cities and in a few cities um, internationally as well. And the idea is that um, specifically we're training teachers to work in urban schools um, or in low-income under-resourced schools. There, I think there are a few rural teacher residencies in other parts of the country also. And um, the need was, and the reason that we developed the program was the superintendent of schools at the time, Thomas Paisant, this is in like 2002, came to our organization and said, hey, like, the first year teachers that I get in Boston Public Schools are talented, smart, awesome people, and clearly, you know, they are motivated and, and loving mm -hmm. people and they care about students. But they don't actually come into our schools knowing how to teach on day one. Mm. Like, they've gotten some theory and philosophy and a little bit of pedagogy, but maybe they had a student teaching um, you know, maybe they had 12 weeks of student teaching. Student teaching assignments are, are sometimes great, sometimes not. There aren't a lot of standards around them. And so the superintendent said, I need teachers who are ready to teach on day one. I need teachers, I need more teachers of color. Mm -hmm. um, I need more teachers in the STEM areas, mm -hmm. um, in science and math in particular at mm -hmm. that time. Now mm -hmm. we're really saying like we need computer science and engineering also. Yeah. Um, and I need teachers who stick around longer. Like these teachers are coming in unprepared, really through no fault of their own, yeah. it's a fault of the system. They're staying for one or two years. Yeah. And that's so <clears throat> damaging to students because- There's no continuity. Have, well, yeah. there's no continuity, but also you have, you have teachers who are experimenting essentially yeah. on students. They're onboarding on the job. Right, and so you're They're figuring it out, and so if it takes them five years yeah. to figure out how to teach geometry, that's so, great for the fifty the kids in the yeah. with, in their fifth year. But what about in the, those first four years? And those yeah. students are like, "Oh, I, I'm bad at math, or I can't, you know, I can't do this." There's a there's a plenty of there's high likelihood for some negative ripple effects from that. So this is essentially to put to dumb it down. Is it like it's almost <laughs> like training wheels? Like it's like an onboarding training wheels. Right. Like you're co-teaching, you're getting your hand held. Like, this is how you teach, like, pre you getting your own room. Yeah, sort of, and I think sort of in one sense it's even more basic than that and that it's, it's, it's argued, we would argue, that teaching is a profession that's not really treated like a profession. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are a lot of dynamics that cause that. Maybe yeah. the fact that we all go to school and we, we see teachers and we yeah. think we know what it takes to be a teacher, but yeah. to really to understand your content well is not enough to be a good teacher like understanding how to teach and the cognitive science behind learning that's all so important to study and master and um we need to treat teaching as if it's a profession like any other technical trade and create standards and best practices that we adhere to and not to say you know like look at that awesome person and just do what that person does like that's not sufficient and so so yeah, training yeah. wheels, but like yeah. like we treat any other profession. Yeah, like any other profession, like there's tiers to it. We're not, you're not going to go to Microsoft and be a VP. Like you're a vice president of this. Like go ahead, run this whole team, right? You don't go to yeah, a job. If you're a there. first time executive, <laughs> and like any, it's actually a really good analogy to just like put it against any industry. Right. Where else are you just a first year and you are the you're the right. chief executive of your classroom? Right. So when teachers walk in, that's a high 
there's a high bar. There's a there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. Right, and and as a national system, I think we're setting them up for failure. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's really interesting to talk to you about this. Like, I you're very passionate about it. Um, I'm curious. I admire that you're in this role. And I was like looking, I was doing the best I could to kind of look into your background. And, <laughs> and like, I, like there's, I wanted to, to chat just a little bit about your background, but, but most importantly, like why you made it to where you are here. You were at the Red Sox at one point, you worked at Constant Contact, like you were in sort of, I mean, the Red Sox is an interesting sort of like, I mean, it's, it's, you know, perhaps the biggest brand in Boston. Like it's, you know, it's, <laughs> sports and maybe maybe you're doing i'm curious what you're doing there like sports marketing or something you went to constant mm-hmm. contact which is a marketing company so you're sort of like you're in that lane in the sort of greater boston sort of job economy and there's many paths i can imagine that you could have seen yourself on and you find yourself here so i'm just curious like what your um what your experience was like there were you did it take you having different types of experiences to uh, really solidify your passion for a Boston plan for excellence, a Dearborn STEM Academy sort of uh, job and career that you're now that you're now embarked on? Just kind of would love to kind of go back in time a little bit and sort of mm-hmm. fast forward to like why you're here, um, sort of as an inspiring tale for others to kind of see like. Hey, you don't always like the path you're on can actually like help you get to, you know, something that maybe satisfies you um, more. Sure. Oh, wait, so where do you want me to start? <laughs> <laughs> so, so what, like, where, well, I guess, and, and, and you know what, like, that's just as, if anything, we can chalk that up to like one of my big monologue segues into like another part of the conversation that who knows I'll probably end up cutting out <laughs> um, because I tend to ramble a lot. Um, but when I was like, I, where like yeah where where are you from you said jamaica sure. so where, like tell sure. me tell Actually, me more about marty that's fuller that's a good way to start to answer <laughs> yeah. this question yeah. because i've always cared about justice and equity and i yeah. think um i think uh, i think it's like uh i don't know how to express this but there's something i think for me as a black woman or for people of color like it's not this like big epiphany that we want to do justice work it just like comes out of who we are as we learn about who we are in this world found the founding of this country the construct of race the construct of whiteness and blackness right and what that did to you know and the the genocide of indigenous peoples and right slavery i mean i think it just it it doesn't feel like it was some um there was like a moment where I realized I wanted to do this. Um, I always have. It's always been important to you. Yeah. And yes, I said, I think I liked your, uh, I liked your framework. It was kind of fun to have the challenge of thinking of one word to answer your (laughs) questions. Cause I do tend to ramble and I'm like, but I can't do this. But I said Jamaica because my uh, parents are from Jamaica. Um, they are immigrants. My dad immigrated to the U.S. in his 20s. My mom, when she was uh, 12 or so, so my mom's been here longer. But um, I grew up in New York. Mm-hmm. And to be Jamaican is actually like a known, it's a, it's a, it is it an actual subgroup. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is an actual subgroup. So it's kind of nice to have like a category I can truly yeah. belong to. It's cool. 
Yeah. As a black person, yeah. you know, it's said that to be an African-American is to be an African without memory, an American without rights or without citizenship. I'll have to find the actual quote. But essentially, um, I, the fact that I have a strong um, culture outside of America that I can identify with is important to me. Draw strength from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Be proud of. Exactly. And I'm proud of my yeah. of yeah. being African American yeah. also, but um it's special to to have that to be a West Indian. Interesting. Uh so yes, I grew up in New York in the suburbs of the city near White Plains and um I was raised by Jamaican parents, so hence I'm from Jamaica. Cool. I've always cared about justice, I've always cared about equity. I've always been a very black woman and I what does that mean for like for you? Oh gosh, it means so much. How yeah. much time do you have? But I'll hang out as long as you want, as long as you have. What time. it means is like I am, I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm a dark skinned black woman who wears her hair natural, mm -hmm. who went to a prep school in New York and mm -hmm. went to a private college mm -hmm. and worked in the private sector in tech. Like so, <laughs> meaning like I am fighting for the right to be myself mm. every day and I am fighting for the right to have to be empowered to be able to advocate to feel like I can have some ownership of the spaces I'm in and not sure. just have to defer to white supremacy and when I say white supremacy I'm not talking about KKK and white nationalists I'm talking about this idea of like whiteness is central and whiteness is normal and everything else is kind of like diversity. <laughs> yeah. You know, so to to claim Does like my end? full humanity yeah. yep. in every way in these spaces is a challenging thing. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that since I was probably about eight years old when my family moved to a white neighborhood from a ethnically mixed neighborhood in White Plains. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I mean. Interesting. I, any of those uh, concepts can yeah, be yeah. broken down in oh, yeah, another know. full hour of yeah, podcasting. No, I, appreci I appreciate the candor. Like, there's like an inherently, um, like, a like almost alienating aspect to the word diversity, which is like for a white dude, like, I, like I don't like necessarily know how to wrap my head around it. But like, if if every if everyone everyone else who is not white it represents diversity like we're automatically starting with like whites as like some sort of specially anointed exactly, race exactly so like that, that is kind of fucked up and that's <laughs> what a lot of these diversity and inclusion yeah. efforts tend to be in institutions and companies it's like how can we get some different colors in our office but there's no attention paid to okay like how do we make sure their culture is is part of the culture that owns this organization and not just our culture. You know, how do we ensure that they feel that they have the the right to bring their voice to the table and yeah. to be leaders and to lead not just in our style, but in their style as well. So it's yeah. like, how does the white culture divest a little bit of its power in order to get what I think is beneficial for white culture and brown culture, which is like shared that's what equity so, is right like yeah shared ownership yeah I, it was recommended to me that i check out russell brand's podcast and so okay. like he's like 15 plus years sober like was a heroin addict and right, he right. had a podcast over the holidays with his 
sort of Indian guru um, and what what and what you know his guru preaches and sort of what um, you know Krishna preaches mm-hmm. is sort of the ultimate um, pursuit of happiness and the ultimate sort of like secret to life is being in a place where you can empathize with every single human on the planet and have the same love in your heart for every single person. And I a hundred percent like can get down with that. And it seems to me that like religion is such a toxic sort of like negative thing, like in the classroom. And I'm not like saying that there aren't other types of religion that could be brought in, but Mm. it seems to me that there's like, Religion, generally speaking, though, and different types and factions of religion are so valuable to so many people. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like, does religion play a role in the Dearborn STEM school at all? Because I can imagine the benefits to it sort of like saying, well, like, forget, like, diversity, this and inclusion here. Like, 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 let's just, we're all human beings. And, it, and I find that, like, a lot of the principles that are important in life like kind of come through like religion so yeah i'm just curious and like you mentioned you mentioned church you know you mentioned you know church earlier i don't know if we were even on air yet but yeah. i'm just curious like what's the role of the church you know of, of the church <sighs> what's the role of religion Gosh, all these big in school <laughs> so i would say i could say a lot of things so there's no there's no role there's no role I, we don't have a world religions class. Um, we don't have any spirituality um, that is taught here in the school. And I'm pretty sure in BPS, there's no room for that, like just in terms of the code and the standards. Right. Um, and so there's that. Um, uh, I do think, I mean, personally, I can. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I like definitely have a spirituality, and I, um, I like a. There's a lot. There are a lot of aspects of Eastern spirituality I like a lot, and I actually think I, I love looking at at least the major world religions or mm-hmm. um, some of the major Eastern religions, and just seeing the unifying elements. Sure. I think seeing looking at the unifying elements across religions teaches just teaches us about human nature and humankind and who yeah. we are. And I do believe in a, in a, in a God um, yeah. who, and I've actually recently really been exploring the sacred feminine, which has been really um, important to me. Uh, what is that exactly? So, um, and this is the sacred feminine in the, in the Christian tradition. Um, um there are so many issues with Western Christianity, American Christianity, Western evangelicalism, and I, gosh. Um, but one of them is that God in the neutral without gender has really been cast as male. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. Jesus even has been cast as male and white male. Like mm-hmm. there's specifically a theology mm-hmm. created um, in the time of slavery to recast. Jesus, who would have been a man of North African descent from Israel, mm-hmm. as a white male, and so that there's so many ways that's been damaging. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a public theologian named Christina Cleveland, who is writing a lot about this, and she's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. She's also my best friend. So, oh, cool. Anyway, um, but 
in particular, to keep this brief, there's this idea of God as transcendent and God above us and God as this perfect being above us that can be damaging because um, because that can have us aspire to this perfection and success and self-righteousness that can be harmful. But the sacred feminine, her characteristics are more about imminence, like God with us, okay. God suffering with us. As Americans, we tend to like focus on success and we tend to focus on drive and motivation and always being better and always being excellent. Um, at the expense sometimes of our beings and our bodies and our souls, whereas the imminent sacred feminine comes alongside us and doesn't always say, like, here's how you're going to get out of this shittiness or here's how this is going to be resolved, but just, like, I am going to be with you. Like, that is what matters right now. Like, I am going to be with you. Like, the imminent God has been really meaningful to me. Um, And actually that that dovetails a little bit with... (laughs) how I ended up in the nonprofit world, I think a lot of the reason was um, I really, I wanted my talents to be serving the community instead of serving shareholders who were already rich and probably mostly white and male. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also, um, being successful at my whole life is more of a value to me than being successful solely in my career. So couple of the jobs I had like I just I wasn't going to work 12 to 15 hours a day just mm-hmm. no like I want to go on hikes I want I've, I've always been on nonprofit boards I've always served on different committees or done political organizing I want to have time for that if a friend calls me up and needs help I want to be available like just being yeah. available we, we don't have that like yeah. anymore yeah and a, a lot of that I think comes out of the culture of like this this transcendent God, like even if we're not religious, like yeah. those ideas have influenced American society. Um, but moving into the nonprofit world, I got to channel a lot of my energy into what I want to see happen in the world. And also there's just, in many nonprofits, not all, but in the one that I work for, there's just a, a healthy culture of like, maybe because education is mostly made up of women. <laughs> it's yeah. like, Let's take care of our families. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's, you know, be civically engaged and let's do our work. We don't need to be here 15 hours a day. So a few of the other the other questions I, I had asked you to sum up your childhood. Sure. And you said fat <laughs> with a PH. <laughs> Tell me more about that fat childhood. Sure. Well, it was the 90s, <laughs> yeah. the 80s and the 90s. I think that's why I use that word. Uh, you know, fat and psych and fresh were the vernacular of the day. Nice. But I had a good childhood, uh, aside from the fact that um, I had, like, the identity challenges and confusion that come with moving from an awesome suburb that was so diverse that I didn't even know that there was one dominant culture in the world. I Mm -hmm. mean, like, even if I had stayed in that city, I would have would have dawned on me that there's one dominant culture in the world because you see the power that whiteness has <laughs> even yeah. in brown communities. Yeah. But if you were to look at the photos, my class photos um, from my early grade school years, you wouldn't be able to pick out one eth- ethnic group um, that was, you know, more numerous than another. Uh, and then I moved, I moved to um, a suburb a little bit north, 
that was really homogeneously white and that was very hard. But anyway, aside from yeah. that, really, like I just, just had a great childhood. Like nice. awesome parents, great family, great kind of social kid social life. Beautiful. Our, Traveled. Yeah. It was awesome. Our, and so you live you live in Ashmont now. Is your fi- you you grew up in New York? Is your yeah, family still in New York? Who's in who's in Boston? No, none of my immediate family are are in New York anymore. My brother and my parents live in Florida, where I was born. Florida and New York are the two major immigration mm-hmm. centers for Jamaicans mm-hmm. in the U.S. It's yeah, it's Florida, New York, Toronto, and London are like the main places London, you'll too. find Jamaicans outside. Of I Jamaica. caught up with a buddy of mine who's a reporter in London today. And oh, nice. one of his parents is Jamaican. Yeah. I just discovered yeah. that today. There yeah. you go. So there you go. All mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I have family, <laughs> like I said, I have family there. Cool. I have an uncle and, yeah, cousins and stuff, so. Nice. How long have you been in Boston? Uh, lost count, 17, 18 years. Nice. And is Boston firmly home for you? Uh, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, being from <clears throat> New York, you know, I grew up in the burbs, but almost everyone I grew up with has moved to the city now and considers themselves Brooklynites or Manhattanites, whatever. And when you hang around people from yeah. Brooklyn or yeah. Manhattan, you recognize that they see themselves as center of the universe. So basically, when I visit them, yeah. they'll stage interventions and ask, like, wait, where do you live again? What's that city called? Yeah. <laughs> why, why don't you yeah. live in New York? Yeah. And I actually think Harlem or Brooklyn would be... Um, probably like the place i theoretically should live yeah you mentioned harlem in your answer of where else you would be yeah harlem or brooklyn yeah i used to say brooklyn more but now that it's like so gentrified and so expensive and well harlem is too what am i talking about but um but i i think that's the place in the world where there are the most people who are like me and where I'd feel most comfortable. Um, but I do really like living in Boston, and I think I like living in Boston, to be honest, not because of the character to characteristics of Boston, but because of the life I've made for myself here. Where mm-hmm. I have an awesome community. I have a church community. I have a I um, do Latin dance. I do salsa dancing. I have an amazing salsa community. Um, oh, you get along with work. my sister-in-law. <laughs> awesome. She's a big salsa Yeah, dancer. maybe I know her, or maybe <laughs> yeah. I would um, recognize her. Like yeah. she's, she lives here and she Well, dances. she lives in L.A. now, but she was a dancer. She was back here originally, was a dancer here. Oh. She's actually a professional dancer wow. now. But yeah, she goes out salsa dancing all the time. I might even know who she is, because like yeah. in, the, in, the in the world of dance, like yeah. you know, people do workshops. And been dancing in, on the That's West awesome. Coast a bunch. But um but yeah, and I also really like, I think I said proximity when you asked me, because I yeah. love... Um, Your favorite thing about Boston, you said proximity. Yes, yeah. and what I meant by that was um, I am an ad- avid like outdoors person, and I do a lot of hiking. I used to do some climbing, not so much anymore. Where do you go hiking? In, in New Hampshire. Nice. Uh, primarily, yeah. and Maine and Vermont also, but... It's one of the things I was looking forward to coming back. Yeah. Different type of Two hiking hours, here. It's more green. White mountains. Even just going to like Mount Monadnock. Yeah. Yeah. Like an hour and a half away. It's not far because it's a little closer and yeah. it's like a nice little day hike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm looking forward to taking my daughter there and like yeah, putting a little pack on. Oh, yeah. Exactly. She's going to be outside all the time. Yeah. You can do that yeah. now. She's 18 months. You yeah. Can yeah. You can just do it right now. Mm-hmm. Do a little cold hike. Nah, make sure I get a soccer ball at her feet. Yeah, well, maybe not do it with the baby right now, but yeah. I just meant yeah. at this age. Yeah, maybe especially with the storm season. we got coming this weekend. But yeah, I hike Mananak in the winter. Nice. Yeah, I hike in the winter. Um, 
kayak, cross-country ski, and I also love the proximity to Martha's Vineyard and <clears throat> the Cape in Nantucket. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's hard to get out of New York City and get to, like, the Hamptons yeah. or the Adirondacks yeah. or even, like, Hammond State Park or just, like, yeah. somewhere green. And yeah. it, it's hard, A, because yeah. of traffic and because things are far away, but it's also harder to have a car there. Yeah. So, um, so I like what I love about Boston is the life I built for myself. There's yeah. some things I do like about the city, um, but then also just that there's so many amazing places to yeah. go and visit all yeah. year round and they're not too far away. And there's green. There's like green. in, in, yeah, in it's LA. Brown. I was in LA <laughs> yeah. for too long. It's brown and, hills. And there's, well, there's plenty of hikes, but yeah, it's all like just, it's like everything's desert color. Yeah, it's a dusty Everything's brown. barren. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, really dry. It's not my favorite like West Coast scenery. There's certainly lots of amazing Big Sur. Mountain scenery it's out there, favorite. but yeah, it's gorgeous. And I only went once. I got to go back. Oh. I keep telling everyone I work with, I'm like, let's do an offsite in Big Sur. <laughs> That's yeah. what we'll do. Yeah. Esselin. Yeah. Thousand dollars a night. Yeah. Um, the place, the land in uh, that Hunter S. Thompson was so inspired by. Mm. If you've read any of his stuff. I haven't read any. Um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned Rollins as the future Boston will be, and yeah. I was like, Paula, like, is that a, a, a district attorney? Yeah, Rollins, Rachel Rollins, Rachel Rollins. Okay, because I looked up, I'm like, I'm pretty sure she means Rachel Rollins. Like, really cool answer. So, do you have a personal relationship with Rachel Rollins, and just like talk to I, me about the future sure. of Boston vis-a-vis no, Rachel? I just yeah. care about the criminal injustice system and reforming the criminal injustice system. Um, actually, Rachel Rollins. I don't know her, but I know her mother. Her mother is this amazing woman named Esther Splain who makes these herbs and solves and um, sells them. Uh, and she has this cool fair around Christmas every year. It's amazing. But um, but I, to me, the future of Boston is Rachel Rollins and Ayanna Presley and my friend Nika Elugardo, who yeah. um, is a state rep. Um, in J.P. Rosendale, Brookline, Mission Hill. All uh, women of color. Yeah, all Let's women go. of color. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. specifically given the history yeah. of Boston and the deep-seated racism here yeah. and um, the lack of representation of women and people of color in particular yeah. in the city. And so I'm just excited. I mean, there's never been a black DA in Boston. I don't think there's been a female DA in Boston. Um and there have been a lot of issues in, um, in um, the 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 way that the district attorney has, for the last sixteen years, run the system has really propagated mass incarceration. And Rachel Rollins is already doing incredible work to change that. So, yeah. so yeah, to me, she's cool. the future of Boston, and she, her as a symbol of the future of Boston will make Boston more of place i'm excited to live in if you heard my hesitation about like, oh, i kind of like boston yeah it's good so. for young people to like of, of any color to just see like different types of people in power whether they're female whether you know they're black like it does like just especially but it's especially i think a valuable time in the world to just have more like more females in general yeah i mean and, and yeah it's 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 great for everyone but like specifically for equity's sake like, yeah we have some ground to make up yeah, we do. And so we really do. So th- she's a big part of it. That's awesome. Um, there's actually there was like a couple questions left, and and one of them was you know what you would change about 
the world, what you'd like to see solved. And you just mentioned. Yeah, it, it's the it, same answer. Yeah, it's the Access. same answer. Like, yeah, you said like inequity and just like helping just make things more equitable for people. I imagine that's been like a big sort of um, umbrella theme to this whole conversation. Yeah, um, exactly. Access. Yeah. Opportunity. We know that all people have the potential to yeah. do amazing things. It's yeah. just a matter of, you know, in some ways getting out of the way and in some ways putting the structures in place that have been in place for white people and especially white men forever. Yeah. Structures that we, yeah. some some people claim not to see and some people can't see. Yeah. Um, but if we can do the work to make those structures available to everyone, then students at the Dearborn will not have to gaze wistfully two miles away at the Hancock Tower and wonder, mm. you know, what's going on over there. Yeah. They'll actually be working yeah. in that very place. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm looking forward to like following up on this conversation and participating in any and all activities that involve you sort of like just brokering relationships and, and, and facilitating conversation with sort of like, except you know, I'm of the, I'm, I'm of that tech and innovation sort of like yeah. economy and mm -hmm. kind of coming back to town, but I'm also like um, sort of like the chief, uh, rally, rally guy of 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 like a, of like a pretty awesome like group of peers, and so I'd love nothing more than like throw some energy at like, hey, like I'm sure you got plenty of cool people in the room already. Like, let me bring some more cool people into the room that want to have these awesome. conversations and 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 like you know donate time and and help like make sure that uh, young people all around the city, especially in this like. This education corridor, is that what we're calling Education it? Innovation it's, District. Especially in this Education <laughs> Innovation District, which we'll have to put on a t-shirt. Yes. <laughs> uh, with like a sound effect. Exactly. Um, I want to, yeah, just make sure that like everyone has like, you know, cool um, access to all the possibilities that this world affords. Because in one way, you know, it's scary. Things are moving so fast and is, you know, op opportunities like increasingly, um, there's an increasing like dichotomy between like, People who have access and people who don't, yeah. but it's it's just on us human beings that are here cohabitating in Boston to make sure that we actually turn that to an advantage. Hey, there's tons of stuff moving in mm -hmm. tons of directions. Yeah. Let's create a framework for like providing feedback and having conversations and making sure that the young people in the city, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. in the education innovation corridor district. <laughs> education Innovation District. You know what? I just got to remember as an acronym. Education Innovation District. EID. Okay. Yeah. It's not like the best acronym, I guess. Eid. Like the Eid. Muslim holiday. The there holiday. we go. Eid. Eid. Yes. Eid. Many there we go. students here who celebrate Eid. So I knew to ask you about other initiatives. And I don't know if I pronounced that. Ujima? Yes. Ujima. Ujima. Yeah. Are you what familiar is that? with that word? Um, I looked it up. Um yeah. Tell me, tell me sure. more. It's a Swahili word that means collective work and responsibility. It's actually the third uh, principle of Kwanzaa. And I actually can't actually name all of the Kwanzaa principles, but it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the principles of, of Kwanzaa. Um, and the Ujima project is an incredible um, project based in Roxbury um, that aims to create a community-driven economy where community members have the final say in how our neighborhoods are developed, 
you know, um, what businesses appear in our community. So um, they're running a number of projects. I think the one that's furthest along is, is a capital fund mm-hmm. to aid small local businesses, primarily run by women or people of color from the neighborhood. Um, and the fund, um, the money, members of the Ujima Project, and I'm a member, get to vote on uh, who the money is given to. So mm-hmm. it's like it's collaborative effort to just have self-determination in the city and especially in Roxbury that is threatened by gentrification. So, yeah. yeah. Super cool. Awesome. So yeah, look them up. Thanks for sharing that. That's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, well, maybe, is there, is there like a formal sort of website for the, for the group and stuff like project, Ujima project. So maybe in the, even when I put up the the blog post, like I'll put the Ujima project up so people can check it out. That'd yes. be really cool. You should check out, uh, you should try to uh, meet Nia Evans, who's the uh, executive director. She used to be the ED of the NAACP. Wow. Not the president. So the okay. president now is Tanisha Sullivan. The president, okay. I think, is always a lawyer and yeah. like not a full time paid employee, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Used to be Michael Curry. But so Nia, under, under Michael Curry, was like the executive, like the, the ED who like ran stuff and got paid and cool. was her job. Um, I, w- awesome. I would be grateful. I'd want not- nothing more than for you to point me in the direction yeah, of some some people to, to to meet and, and and introduce like the I mean Boston listeners that we're kind of slowly building up that are that are learning about this initiative and 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 really more importantly learning about like the initiatives and sort of people that are driving change here in the city. So yeah, I have can think of a list of names. I've already thought of a list of five people. Yeah, That's so awesome. Really appreciate that, Marty. This yeah. has been a pleasure been quite a pleasure for me yeah. as well i'm very very grateful this is the first time we met I'm very grateful to have the new friend what and, who said you know, we were friends <laughs> <laughs> hey listen every, I, 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 you, you understand like I, I am of the mindset that any stranger is is just simply a, a, a new friend when mm. i meet them so but when got you this said one directional friendship going yeah on. so like if you're if you're gonna break my heart right now and tell me we're not friends like i'm gonna get upset <laughs> um but we just spent like over an hour I know. Talking. So I hope that I have a new friend. Mm. Um, I want you to know that I really appreciate this. And moving forward, like I want to participate in all sorts of um, cool activities and, and yes, events and groups that you're putting together to. to bridge that gap, create that connective mm-hmm. tissue, help students, educators, and the innovation economy just be in like this really cool like 360 loop, like you know feedback yes, funnel. I would love that. I That'd would be love really that. cool. And actually, CTOD is. Um, has been part of that network too. Just nice. his background, as you know, is programmer, data yeah. biz, business strategy. Yeah. He kind of he like has the job of tomorrow, which yeah. is what yeah. we need to understand totally. in order to educate kids. And so. for um I haven't talked to C Todd Lombardo on the podcast yet, but for listeners, C Todd Lombardo founded Product Camp. He used to run TEDx Somerville, like just like really inspiring um and and talented sort of um, leader in Boston we'll, we'll, we'll call him but someone will have to talk to someone will have to talk to in the future yeah cool Marty been a pleasure been a pleasure uh-